Welcome back to the Yeshua Judaism podcast series. This will be part seven of our discussion of oral Torah, proof of its legitimacy and necessity. Now, you may recall way back in part one, I mentioned how the, the approach I was going to be taking was I was going to discuss five different, different premises. Premise one is that Christians do not know what Torah and oral Torah are. That is what I've been discussing up until this point. Premise two is that Christianity regularly and always has utilized oral Torah. Then there's premise three, four, and five, which we'll get into later. Now, before leaving premise one, that is the discussion of oral Torah, the definition of Torah and oral Torah, a few concluding remarks. You will find a number of people out there, matter of fact, most people out there who follow Yeshua and the New Testament, you'll find that most of them are very opposed to oral Torah. And they'll, they'll basically promote the idea that it's useless, it's simply traditions, it's bogus, it's unbiblical, etc., etc., etc. They'll have all manner of alleged proofs or opinions to dissuade you from considering study of oral Torah. Well, first of all, most of the people who do this, to be honest, have never studied much oral Torah. For instance, the study of Hashkafa. Hashkafa is something that, frankly, few people really get into. It's not commonly studied, even within Judaism. I, I've listened to hours and hours and hours of Hashkafa study from a, uh, a famed rabbi who's a special specialist in Hashkafa, and uh, even he states that most Orthodox Jews do not know much of what he discusses. And all the more for Christians— they know virtually nothing, or people who study a few years of Torah and think they know it all. That's not the way it works, people. Torah is infinite. You could study Torah for a thousand years and still not even hardly scratch the surface of what there is to know. Torah is as infinite as the eternal creator who gave it. Torah encompasses literally Everything in creation, both physical and spiritual, everything. So you can never know everything. To know everything, you literally would have to be the one who gave the Torah, the eternal creator, which no one will ever achieve that. So we will be learning Torah forever. Now, having said that, there is Torah that is able to be learned and understood. But even that is an extremely large amount of material. I do not dare to even suggest that I've scratched the surface of it. But many people who oppose oral Torah, again, they've, very, they've generally studied very little of it. Usually, when they talk about oral Torah and their rejection of it and their hatred of it and how it's it's not worth studying, they're referring to the halakhic, the legal, the technical things regarding oral Torah. Usually, 
to the Durabanans, the Takanot, which we discussed previously. They generally are referring to the legalities, the the rabbinic decrees, etc. Sometimes they may be referring to Kabbalah, and generally they don't even know enough Kabbalah to know what they're talking about. But my point is, you can't reject oral Torah just because somebody tells you it's not worth studying. You need to actually look for yourself. I, I use the term sometimes outsourcing your eternity. One of the worst problems, frankly, one of the most tragic conditions that exist in Christianity is how Christians generally outsource their eternity. They let their leaders tell them what to believe. They take the most valuable thing they could possibly possess, their eternal destiny, and they hand it over to someone else. They give the responsibility of their eternal destiny to someone else. They outsource their eternity, and that is a terrible thing to do. Well, the same thing with any type of study. You should not outsource your opinions to someone else. You should form your own opinions. So please be cautious. You'll have people, like I've I'm proving here, I'm talking about oral Torah and how it's legitimate and, and necessary, and yet most people will tell you the exact exact opposite and tell you that I'm wrong and I'm crazy or whatever, I'm Judaizing, whatever they want to do. I'm not doing any of that. I'm simply saying there are valuable, extremely valuable and enlightening things you can discover when, within oral Torah. Let's take Masar, for instance. You know I mentioned, mentioned Masar. Masar is simply ethical teachings. And by the way, guess what? It's oral Torah. Masar, the New Testament is filled with Masar. It is totally packed with Masar. There's not a single ethical teaching in the New Testament that you will not find also in the oral Torah of Judaism. It's, they teach the same thing, and yet, except they usually expand upon it. The best Masar-type material you can ever find, the best ethical teachings you can ever find, teachings that discuss how how to live your life, how to become more righteous, etc., etc., is found within Judaic Masar writings. For instance, duties of the heart, the ways of the tzaddikim. There's so many different writings. There are so many writings that were the, the, God, the, the guide to serving God. There's so many writings from Judaism that are Masar, that basically are like New Testament ethical teachings on steroids. It's like taking the best ethical teachings you can find in the New Testament and then magnifying those teachings to a far greater depth. It's, it's absolutely superb material. That's Masar, and that is a category of Oral Torah. That is a part of Oral Torah, Masar. It's one of the Agadah. It's, it's the non-legal stuff. Sometimes you'll have legalities sprinkled in among it, among it, but that's usually not what it is. It's about how to increase your faith, how to have a better faith, better trust in God, etc. Kabbalah, or, or Hashkafa, teaches more the deepest discussions you can ever see about the nature of God. What is God? Why did God create? Why am I here? Why did God create mankind? 
why is there evil in the world? What is the purpose of evil, etc., etc.? All that's hashkafa. You virtually never hear that discussed in Christianity because, as I suggested before, Torah is like an ocean, and yet the depth, the teaching of Christianity are like a little blow-up backyard swimming pool for kids to splash around in. And I don't say that to be mean, or I don't say that to denigrate Christianity. I say it because it's simply true. Christianity, sadly, is a very shallow religion, just like that shallow little blow-up swimming pool that your, your grandchildren splash around in. It's just a fact. If you want to get out of the swimming pool and swim in the ocean, you got to study oral Torah. If you refuse to do that, then have fun in this swimming pool. Knock yourself out. So, concluding, do not be dissuaded from study of oral Torah by people who plant the seed in your mind that it is not worth studying. Bear in mind, most of those people have themselves studied very little of it or have focused on the negative aspects of it and haven't studied enough to recognize the dominant positive aspects. That's why in the previous part I discussed legitimate versus illegitimate oral Torah and that you do need to be careful. You need to practice discernment, etc. But what's wrong with studying something that you may later reject? At least you know about it. It seems like most people only study what they already accept. Well, how does that how does that contribute to your growth spiritually? How does that contribute to your knowledge if the only thing you ever study is what you already know and already agree with? Step out and dare to study what you know nothing about. Do that. That's the only way you can grow in knowledge of the ways of God. Study what you don't know about and then decide if it's worth keeping or if you need to discard it. And believe me, if you begin studying oral Torah, you'll be doing it the rest of your life. And yes, a lot of it you will discard. Again, the the Durbanans, the Takanot, the ridiculous, elitist rabbinic decrees, the authoritarianism of the rabbis, all that, just, just trash it trash it. All the stuff they heap on top of the Torah to make it so burdensome and so difficult. They, they present enormous barriers to truth, enormous barriers that present, prevent people from drawing near to God. But that generally is the halakhic, the legalities. That's the technical aspects of Torah. But when you look at the Agadah, the non-legal aspects, although a lot of that is also bad, for instance, the elitism, and how, how the Jew is so highly exalted and presented as a, as a superior human species, that you need to reject. But there's a lot in it, a lot in it, the Agadah aspects and the Hashkafa aspect, aspects that are extremely, extremely enlightening and will definitely, definitely improve your faith, give you more understanding and trust, give you a greater appreciation and belief in the Almighty Creator, Yehovah, God. So I just want to get that out there. Don't be dissuaded by those who 
tell you not to pay attention and not to study oral Torah. They usually do not know what the heck they're talking about. And they're usually themselves, have, they have a very limited knowledge of oral Torah. And that includes people who came from Judaism. Because again, there are things many Orthodox Jews don't even know that they do not study. You, you, most Orthodox Jews are they're more of the Talmudic. They're, they, they study generally the legalities, the Talmud. There's different things that people study within Judaism. You have others that are more in the more mystical areas. You know, you have you know the Sephardic Jews, the Ashkenazi Jews, different Jews. You know, it, it you know the people who follow Balsam Tov. The, there's so many different. Uh, I guess you would. They're not really denominations, but different types of focus within Judaism, and they don't know everything. There's there's undoubtedly there's probably not a single individual in the world that knows everything that's ever taught in the oral Torah. I, I severely doubt uh, that that just isn't the case. You have some that are very knowledgeable that I'm talking here about rabbis, maybe. Some rabbis are very knowledgeable about, about, about Talmudic stuff, the Mishnah, the Gemara, uh, you know, Rashi, all the various sages, their interpretations of Scripture, blah, 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 and all that. Others are very knowledgeable on Kabbalah, their, you know, Lurianic Kabbalah, Hashkafa, Masar, it, it, it it's just, you can't put your finger, to, you, you can't define oral Torah clearly. And that's why I've had such difficulty trying to define it for you. It, it's, it's just too broad. Study it. Particularly the Hashkafa, particularly the non-legal aspects. That is where the value is most easily found. Okay, now continuing. So up to this point, we've discussed premise one, as I said, and that is how Christians do not know what Torah and oral Torah are. And as part of that discussion, I defined roughly Torah and oral Torah. Now we're going to get into premise number two. And here we will discuss how Christianity regularly and always has utilized oral Torah. So, now that oral Torah is defined and understood, as previously discussed, it becomes obvious that Christianity and all other religions regularly utilize oral Torah, or verbal teachings, as a standard practice. Even though this is undeniable, I realize that hardcore anti-Torah Christians will deny it. Nonetheless, therefore, I will present further evidence. The New Testament includes a portion of every single one of the Torah elements that were defined in the previous parts. Besides its obvious documentation of history, the New Testament is filled with Musar, Midrash, elements of Hashkafa, Agadah, and even includes Halakha. Without the dominance within the writings of the New Testament of those Judaic-based oral Torah components, the New Testament would not exist, and the Christian religion would have never materialized. 
Literally, if you did not have oral Torah, there would be no New Testament. There would be no Christianity. It is quite the oddity that the sacred writings of Christianity, the New Testament, if properly interpreted from a context that is correct, are oral Torah, even though Christianity judges oral Torah to be unacceptable and even damnable. The New Testament is oral Torah. The ignorance of Torah within Christianity causes Christians to consider all elements of oral Torah to be illegitimate. If that were true, then the New Testament would also be illegitimate. Friend, the New Testament is oral teachings, verbal teachings, that were written down, and with few exceptions, those teachings actually originate from already existing oral Torah, which can still be found today throughout the oral Torah of Rabbinic Judaism. Okay, obvious New Testament use of Kabbalah and Musar. I'll briefly suggest, and only br very briefly, I could go into greater depth, but this is already going to be a very long series, so I'll briefly suggest one of numerous exa additional examples of Christianity's erroneous rejection of oral Torah by showing specifically how its rejection of Kabbalah and Musar is the epitome of hypocrisy. First, with regard to Kabbalah, note the following verses taken from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, and 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Now, note that Kabbalah is simply a Hebrew word that basically means received, so, received uh, Torah, received inspiration. It comes from a term that simply means to receive from God. It's not some satanic word. It's not some word of witchcraft. It's simply a Hebrew word that has a meaning that basically implies to receive, to receive information from the divine. So first, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, I'll be reading from the NET translation. Secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those that are revealed belong to us and our descendants forever, so that we might obey all the words of this law. And the, the term law there in Hebrew is Torah. Now from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Here I'll read from the English Standard Version. Yet among the mature... And this is, of course, the Apostle Paul speaking, Apostle Shaul. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now pay special attention to the words wisdom secret, hidden wisdom that Paul mentioned there. Also, that how God decreed these things, these secret things, before the ages for our glory. Basically inferring that it pre preceded creation itself. 
These two passages clearly imply that there are various biblical truths that are secret or hidden. This obviously leads one to conclude that the truths of God are not as simple and open to everyone's understanding as many seem to think they are. Such teachings are said to contain the sowed or secret level of Torah. This sowed level is what constitutes Kabbalah, a word that simply means, as I said, received, as in received truths from God that were given to Moses and others counted worthy, but never explicitly written in the Bible. It represents, that is Kabbalah, the deeper and often hidden meanings or additional meanings of various passages of Scripture. Those teachings are among the oral Torah, or verbal teachings. Note how Paul's use of the term wisdom, note his use of that term, wisdom, in the verses I read. Now, that term, people, is commonly used among Torah sages to refer to Kabbalah, which is frequently called the wisdom of God. It's like a code word. In fact, wisdom is one of the most common terms used in reference to Kabbalah. Paul clearly implies that such wisdom is only given to those mature enough to understand and accept it. Excuse me, and accept it, which once again precisely follows the common practice among Torah sages regarding the transfer of the Kabbalah, since spiritual maturity is absolutely necessary. Before Kabbalah would be transferred to a a Torah student, that student would have to demonstrate extensive knowledge of Torah basics and possess an exceptional emotional and mental aptitude. It is for this reason that many Judaic leaders and others are greatly dismayed excuse me, dismayed with the ease with which a person can find and study Kabbalah literature today. Frankly, I myself am a bit dismayed, since much of the material being marketed as Kabbalah is illegitimate or cheap knockoffs of the truth, and most people do not know how to determine what is authentic and what is New Age garbage or distortions. Additionally, Even the legitimate Kabbalah is being drastically distorted to fit whatever bias an individual may hold. Among the very worst of the corrupt distortions of Kabbalah to be found are those being spewed from the deceitful mouths and pens of counterfeit messianic, self-anointed rabbis as they grotesquely warp and deform Kabbalah to allegedly prove Messiah's deity. I have very little respect for such agents of deceit. They are despicable charlatans who show no respect for God's wisdom as they twist it to suit their idolatrous and often egomaniacal motives. It is for that reason that I loathe much that is found in the counterfeit messianic faith system. It is nothing more than Christianity with Jewishness added as as a facade. These self-anointed messianic rabbis are false teachers who desecrate Torah and the giver of Torah through their promotion of blatant idolatry. 
The Pope can parade around with a Taurus scroll and wear a tallit, but he is still the Pope. Such a vision of deceit aptly applies to those rabbis. Legitimate Kabbalah most definitely does not support a corporeal God in the flesh, but their unyielding bias blinds them to truth as they fashion together their God incarnate Messiah idol from material that they slice and dice from among Kabbalistic literature. The Apostle Paul, as a highly educated Torah scholar, undoubtedly knew what the term wisdom refers to and did not use it casually. He knew, Paul knew that that term, wisdom, refers to the sowed level of Torah. It refers to Kabbalah. Unfortunately, I have yet to meet a Christian who meets this mature quality, even though many may consider themselves qualified. I've never met one. The primary reason they fail to qualify is because they are taught to reject Torah, specifically Judaic oral Torah. Unless those Christians undertake Torah study, they will never, ever achieve the level of the wise, ever will not happen. The secret, hidden, or mystery aspects of the work of Messiah are often mentioned in the New Testament. Within Paul's epistle, it is a common topic. That is, and that is likely because Paul was probably the most Torah knowledgeable of all the original followers of Messiah due to his extensive training as a student of the top Torah scholar of his generation. Rabbi Gamaliel I, or Gamaliel the Elder. Therefore, Paul was one was the one among Yeshua's followers most able to discuss such matters. But is it is not just within Paul's epistles that the issue is found. I will leave it to the reader or listener to discover all the passages in which the New Testament discusses it. Among the passages in which it is mentioned in the letters of Paul, are the following. Now notice the terms mystery and hidden and secret in what, I'll be, what I'm about to read. First, quoting from Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26 from the NET Bible. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Yeshua Messiah, according to the revelation of the mystery that had been kept secret for long ages, but now is disclosed, and through the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. Now notice what Paul said. According to the revelation of the mystery that had been kept secret for long Ages. People, that's Kabbalah. That's what that is. Let me read that again. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Yeshua Messiah, according to the revelation of the mystery that had been kept hidden secret for long ages, but now is disclosed and through the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Again, he's referring to Kabbalah people right there in the New Testament. Now, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. And by the way, any preacher or whatever who says that's not true, 
is simply an idiot and don't know what Kabbalah is. I mean, just I'm just being blunt. That's what that's what they are. If they tell you that is not referring to Kabbalistic understandings of things, secret understanding, then they don't know what the heck they're talking about. They're idiots, and you should run from them because they prove themselves to be fools. Ephesians chapter three verses four through nine again in ET Bible, and this is still the Apostle Paul. When reading this you will be able to understand my insight into this secret of Messiah. Now, this secret was not disclosed to people in former generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Namely, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Messiah Yeshua. I became a servant of this gospel according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the exercise of his power. To me, less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Messiah and to enlighten everyone about God's secret plan, a secret that has been hidden for ages in God who has created all things. I mean, people, there you go again. Paul is referring to Kabbalistic or Hashkafa principles that were being revealed directly through Messiah and through Yeshua Judaism, through what he brought down, what Yeshua brought down from heaven. Again, there, Ephesians, secret. But he talks about the secret of Messiah. He talks about the secret was not disclosed formally. He talks about how that secret has now been revealed. Remember, Kabbalah actually means to receive. He talks about how it was to enlighten everyone about God's secret plan, a secret that has been hidden for ages in God. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what else I can say. It's right there. Kabbalah is being endorsed in the New Testament. Now from Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. That is the mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known to them the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Messiah in you, the hope of glory. Again, mystery, hidden. (laughs) People, it's there. The New Testament endorses the sowed level of understanding of Torah. It endorses Hashkafa or Kabbalistic understanding. Now, I'll get in later into defining that there are actually levels of Kabbalah. I'm only here referring to what's called theoretical Kabbalah, okay? And I'll go ahead and say it now. You have theoretical Kabbalah, meditative Kabbalah, and practical Kabbalah. The meditative and practical is what gets into very deep things that I have no interest in getting into, particularly practical Kabbalah. Excuse me, practical Kabbalah. Theoretical Kabbalah is simply understanding of things. That's all it is. Meditative and practical, that gets into the actual practices of it. I'm not interested in that. I I think people should avoid that. I have no interest in even studying that. But theoretical Kabbalah is actually just the basic fundamentals of understanding of things. It's really Hashkafa. It's Hashkafa. In my opinion, theoretical Kabbalah is Hashkafa, which is just a general understanding of God and his ways. That's what Hashkafa generally is. It is the study, you might even call it the science of God 
and the ways in which he interacts with his creation. That is basically Ashkafa. Theoretical Kabbalah is a large component of that. So, Christianity openly rejects Kabbalah and other things which they call mysticism or mystery religion. Such rejection by Christianity is rather astounding and hypocritical, since the New Testament repeatedly refers to things that were mysteries and hidden until the time of Messiah. The passages I just quoted from the New Testament go even further by claiming that a secret and hidden wisdom was kept hidden until that time. Therefore, if Christianity rejects such things, then it would not even exist, since by rejecting secret and hidden teachings, Christianity would have to reject the Christ and his atoning work. Wake up! Folks, the very atoning work, that very atoning work of Messiah is directly stated as being a secret and hidden wisdom and elsewhere as being a mystery. And most assuredly, if Christianity truly rejects mysticism and mystery, then it better erase the book of Revelation from the New Testament, since there is possibly no writing found that is more mystical in its nature than is the Revelation. Even many Kabbalistic works are more understandable than is the Revelation. Friend, Revelation is pure Kabbalah. It is a, a classic, deep Kabbalistic treatise. So if, if Christians want to reject Kabbalah, then tear the New Testament out of your Bible, because that's what it is, folks. It is a simple fact that Christianity, because of it being based on the mystery of Messiah, is itself a mystery religion. Anyone denying this is ignoring the obvious. Anyone. In Roman Catholicism, you can find many mysteries directly mentioned. They even directly refer to them as mysteries. And guess where all of the Christian denominations come from, people? Like, all Christian groups come from Roman Catholicism. The very bedrock foundation of Christianity, the work of Messiah, is explicitly stated in the New Testament to have come from secret and hidden truths of God that were mysteries. Therefore, for Christianity to reject Kabbalah is beyond hypocritical and falls within the domain of moronic stupidity, ineptitude. It is total hypocrisy for Christianity and Christians to reject Kabbalah since their very belief system is based on it. The very work of Messiah is based on Kabbalistic understandings. This is even more the case with regard to Masar. The New Testament is absolutely filled with ethical and moral teachings that instruct a person how to improve themselves and become a more effective servant of God, which, by the way, is exactly what constitutes Masar. That's what Masar is. It's teachings on how to improve yourself and, be and become a more effective servant of God. That's what it is. And that's what the New Testament teaches in many, many places. That is Masar people, and Masar is oral Torah. Like mystery and hidden teachings, without Masar, Christianity 
would also not exist. The Masoreth in the New Testament is nothing more than a tiny subset of a much more comprehensive ethical and moral set of teachings found within Judaism's Oral Torah. Therefore, even while rejecting Oral Torah, Christianity unknowingly follows some common Oral Torah concepts. The parallels, duplication, and general likeness of most of the New Testament's teachings to Judaic Oral Torah are too numerous to mention. All one has to do is study a few Judaic books on Masar, and you will see. You will see the parallels. But more than that, those Judaic teachings within the New Testament would be expanded within Oral Torah studies. They'd be expanded upon and more clearly explained. If Christians refuse to study such material, such oral Torah material, and to read such books, then they have no basis for disagreeing with me. They have no basis for disagreeing with the position of this material, of what I'm stating, since by refusing to even study the issue, they are too untaught to form a sound or admissible opinion. If you're not going to study it, don't disagree with me, because you wouldn't know what you're talking about. How can you judge me and what I'm saying if you don't even study the material? You're too untaught. You'd be, your opinion is, is illegitimate. It's not admissible, because you don't know, know enough about the subject to even talk about it. All that such Christians prove is that they possess a closed-minded bias and refusal, absolute refusal, to so search for truth if it's beyond their sphere of comfort. If it get, gets outside their comfort zone, they don't want anything to do with it. And that's why they stay ignorant. Regardless of what Christians may think, the very religion they revere is based upon some of Judaism's most fundamental oral Torah teachings that in critical areas... Torah-hating Christianity has wholly, completely upended, reinterpreted, and presented in a way that is far removed from their actual meanings, meanings that can be usually found through the study of Judaic Oral Torah. Of course, there are a few crucial issues, particularly with regard to the identity of Messiah, the openness of the kingdom of God to Gentiles, and the impartiality of God, in which the New Testament deviates somewhat from Judaic, Rabbinic, Akiva Judaism, Oral Torah. However, such examples are actually few in number when compared to the volume of teachings found in the New Testament and are not the subject of this discussion. As stated earlier, Torah is simply a Hebrew word that means teachings or instructions. That is all it is. It is simply a Hebrew word with a simple English translation of teachings or instructions. I realize many people idolize the word Torah, but it is simply a word for goodness sake. The word itself is not important. The importance lies in what those teachings, or Torah, contain. So the term oral Torah, as I've often stated, simply means oral teachings or verbal teachings that were not specifically written in the Scripture. As I said, the term oral simply means verbal. It refers to teaching instructions that were not 
codified in the Bible, but were transferred verbally or in written form. That is all it means. Christianity rejects oral Torah. Therefore, the Christianity stance explicitly causes them to actually be rejecting verbal teachings. Oh, really? Is it true that Christianity rejects verbal teachings? Because that's what oral Torah is. It's simply verbal teaching. So, does Christianity reject oral Torah? No, it does not. It is not true. Christianity does not reject oral Torah, and Christians are liars if they claim otherwise. If Christians say that they reject the oral Torah, they're saying they reject verbal teachings, which they do not reject. Therefore, they are liars if they say they do. What do Christians think they are studying and reading in all the thousands of volumes of Christian books and literature? What do you think they are saying whenever they open their mouths to express an opinion or a teaching? What do Christians think they are hearing from pulpits, home studies, or gatherings whenever teaching is being transferred verbally or in text form from anyone? What insanity, folks! Christian opposition to oral teachings is outrageous. It's stupidity. Oh, and guess what? I can tell you a place to go where you will find thousands upon thousands, perhaps millions of pages of Christian oral Torah. It's called a Christian bookstore. Go to a Christian bookstore and you'll find maybe millions of pages of Christian oral Torah. Verbal teachings. Anytime you or anyone else discusses the Bible and uses anything other than pure Scripture when you speak, you are partaking in oral teaching, verbal teaching, oral Torah. It is literally impossible to refrain to refrain from verbal teachings or oral Torah unless you never open your mouth, listen to any biblical opinions, or read any religious material other than strictly the Bible passages. Even the thoughts in your mind as you consider and attempt to make sense of what you read from the Bible are oral teachings of a sort themselves. Bluntly stated, the stated rejection of oral Torah by Christians and Christianity or any other religious group is the very epitome, the highest form of hypocrisy. Even as they claim to reject oral teachings or oral Torah, they are swimming in their own version of it. They are hearing it, speaking it, praying it, and reading it on a daily basis. Thus, Christians who claim to reject oral Torah are utterly deceitful and hypocritical. The simple irrefutable fact is that Christianity constantly utilizes its own form of oral Torah, while hypocritically claiming to reject oral Torah. Therefore, since every faith system on earth, including Christianity, actually does participate in a form of oral Torah, it is obviously proven to be legitimate. No religious system is possible without it. No religious system is possible without its own form of oral Torah, verbal teachings. Without verbal teachings or oral Torah to accompany the written scriptures, 
practice of any faith system is literally impossible. Now, I'm going to pause here, and the next part, part eight, we'll be entering into premise number three. And there we'll discuss how the New Testament supports and is itself a small presentation of basic oral Torah. So I'm, I'm going to take what I've suggested in this discussion, and I'm going to expand upon it a bit more in part eight of our discussion of how oral Torah is both legitimate and necessary. So please stay tuned and come back to listen to part eight. And I appreciate you listening, and goodbye.